And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a great week. Um, a lot to get to, as always, today. I was joined by David Brutz, uh, managing editor for the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, it was a good chat. I think you guys will really enjoy it. We broke down uh, a whole bunch of new polls that came out this week uh, regarding the uh, the multitude of uh, Democrats that want to become the next president of the United States. Um, we talked about uh, Venezuela and all the madness going on down there. We talked about maybe the most ridiculous proposal um, by any anyone running for president ever. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. Um, if you haven't heard it, it's it's a really, really incredible stuff. Um, so yeah, I before I get to David, uh, guys, you have to subscribe. You have to subscribe. Who knows? Who knows how long big tech companies are going to allow guys like me to even use their platforms? So if you like the page on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Uh, who knows? They could just delete my accounts at any time. So you got to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Uh, so you know you will get updates whenever we upload a new podcast, which, of course, is every Monday and Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. For iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Tweet at us. We always tweet back. All right. Without further ado, here is my chat with David Rutz. <laughs> Okay, guys, we're here with David Rutz, managing editor of the Washington Free Beacon. David, thanks so much for taking the time, man. No problem. Thanks a lot for having me, Brady. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, this week there were a series of new polls released um, for the 2020 Democratic primary. And, wow, Joe Biden received a huge bump after officially announcing his candidacy last week. They, they always get an announcement bump in the polls, you know, five, six points sometimes. Bernie Sanders got about a, a six-point bump when he announced. Joe Biden is really solidifying his status as the front runner. Um, and we're going to break down all the numbers specifically, but what do you make of Joe Biden starting off with such a large lead? Uh, yeah, no, that was a, a huge bump, much, much larger than I think a lot of people would have guessed. Uh, I, I know I more than I would have guessed. Uh, I think it's a testament to um, it was a, a strong rollout. Uh, he had, I think he had a good announcement speech. He kind of pitched himself immediately as like the anti-Trump person. And from my reporting on the trail, the number one thing that primary voters care about is beating Trump and not necessarily like an ideological purity contest, no matter what Twitter tells us. And um, that being said, he also, of course, I, I think it's a testament also just at this point in the process, how important name identification is, um, you know, uh, Biden is the most well-known Democrat. Every time you look at these numbers in terms of the least amount of people don't have an opinion about him. Uh, so a good start for him, but it's also worth noting that at this point in the process, Rudy Giuliani was leading in 2008. Um, uh, there, there's still a long way to go. I get the feeling his numbers still might be soft because of how long their way there is to go in this process. But yeah, you couldn't deny he had an excellent start. Right. And, you know, we can't stress enough that it is early. It is <laughs> May 1st, 2019. At this point in 2015, uh, Jeb Bush was the GOP frontrunner, followed by Scott Walker. Yeah, Jeb. <laughs> yeah. Jeb Bush, <laughs> Scott Walker, 
Um, I believe Rand Paul was in in third. I mean, so look, we it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. But uh, I want to break down a few of these polls. I want to start with the the poll that I found the most fascinating. It, it was a CNN poll uh, that had uh, support for these candidates uh, bro- broken down by race. And among whites, among uh, white registered voters, Biden is at 29 percent, Bernie Sanders at 15 percent, Pete Buttigieg at 10 percent, Elizabeth Warren at 8 percent, Kamala Harris at 6 percent, Beto O'Rourke at 6 percent, and everybody else polling at 2 percent or under. And among minorities, and this was the real shocker, among minorities, Joe Biden is at 50 percent of the minority vote with Bernie Sanders at 14, Warren 7, Harris 4, Beto 4, Buttigieg 3. So. I think that 50% of the minority vote for Joe Biden is the most shocking number. But let's talk about what these numbers mean. Starting with the minority vote, you know, half of which is going to Joe Biden right now. Uh, It's it's an eye-popping number, yeah. And as we've seen, um, Democrats ignore or or don't uh, play to a minority base of their party at their own peril. Because as we've seen recently, um, I mean, look at Alabama. I mean, Doug Jones is a senator right now because of black women. I mean, right. they came out and 20, 25 of them voted for him in that election in a really close race, and that's what swung it for them. Uh, but as far as the astonishing support for him, it's really not, again, I think that a lot of it goes to, to Nam ID, not to go back to that, but I'm more astonished, honestly, at how poor uh, Kamala Harris, a uh, media kind of anointed candidate, I kind of get a Marco Rubio vibe from her in the sense that I think the media is much more enamored with her than the public is. I mean, her numbers are really awful, and uh, for a woman who's running on a historical platform for her to be doing that poorly, I thought was uh, remarkable. So, uh, I, I mean, I don't think Joe Biden is going to hold on to 50% of minority support uh, going forward. Again, I think it's just a testament to like everyone knows who he is. Uh, but it's also a testament to how poor a job these other candidates have with all these months of time to uh, to establish themselves and not doing so. I just, I just, I couldn't get over how badly she was doing when, um, you know, black voters were obviously incredibly loyal to Barack Obama in 2008, 2012. So I'm sure that's some of the carry over there because Biden is Obama's, you know, top guy. Uh, but um, it just were just incredibly bad for, for Kamala Harris there. She should be very worried, I think. Right. I that, you Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with 4% of the minority vote going four, to Kamala yeah, Harris. Four, four that was, is, I was like, my God, that's awful. And Cory Booker not even registering in the poll. I mean, he wasn't even involved. <laughs> I keep forgetting he's right, honestly. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's just right, and I don't want to. I'm not generalizing the 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 black vote. That's not a, a solid voting block or whatever. You know, it does fluctuate. It's not like uh, you know, black voters will only vote for black candidates or something. But like you said, with Barack Obama getting nearly 95 percent of the black vote, the fact that these black candidates are making up no ground. I mean, they're 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 doing worse among the minority vote than they are among the white vote. And it's I, I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. I mean, and again, it could be an anomaly. I mean, again, like we're, we're very early on here and there's still plenty of time to for them to establish themselves. I mean, again, it's it's kind of fool's goal to be to be looking too much into this. That being said, uh, it is a disappointment, I'm sure, for those candidates who've had all this time to not establish themselves. No, no one would call her. No one would call Warren or Booker or any of these senators, uh, except for Bernie and Joe Biden, front runners at this point. And, you know, maybe that's part of the plan. I don't know if they want to just kind of hang back and and kind of, you know, let Joe sort of fade out a little bit. Um, but uh, sorry, someone was walking in real quick. Um, but it's um, it, it's something for them to be worried about for sure. Right. And I, I think if their plan is to wait out Joe Biden to implode, that's what every GOP candidate did in, in 2016. And uh, Trump never 
I mean, he never lost his base of support. So if they if they're going to hang back and, and wait for Biden to, to collapse, I think they're doing that at their own peril. Um, another another. It seems well, to I me. Think, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, go so ahead. Biden, go ahead, David. Biden has sort of this is a problem with being sometimes caught too much in the Twitter bubble, whereas a lot of these other Democrats have been engaged in this sort of sprint to the left. You know, all the ones from the Senate, they all have the the same. They're kind of hard to distinguish at this point. They all support Medicare for all. They're all kind of trying to outleft each other. And Biden, he's not quite some Clinton third way guy. I mean, Biden's a very liberal person. He's no moderate. But he at least gives off that image, I think, to a lot of more left center, more independent Biden Democrats who are looking for anybody but Trump, uh, kind of a reassuring person. He's been in office before. Uh, he's extremely well liked in the party for all of his uh, all of his gaffes and, and all of his dopiness that he's had before. He's still a trusted <laughs> figure with them. Right. And that's, that means a lot. And like I said, people I've talked to, they, the number one thing they always care about is we want to beat Trump. And if Biden, I think, I think his message should be, I'm the right guy to do that above all, all everyone else. I can take him on. I can be formidable in the Midwest. And I think he would be uh, if he, if he survived the woke Olympics and, and got through this thing, which were, you know, is, I mean, a long way to go there. So um, I think he's just unoccupying a land that no other Democrats are at this point and couple that with his name ID and there you go. He's way out in front. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there is something to be said also. And I haven't seen any polling data to back this up just based on my normal human interactions in, in the real world, not necessarily on Twitter. All of the hard left people all the, the true leftists, the people that are enamored with socialism and communism, they're all white college kids. <laughs> they're like white upper middle class suburbanites, you know, like I've never seen a black guy with a Che Guevara t-shirt. Like that's just not, it just <laughs> doesn't happen. And it seems like the, the far left socialist candidates, you know, are not, maybe that's another reason why they aren't gaining much traction with the minority vote. I mean, I, I you don't see a lot of communists, blacks and Hispanics out there. I mean, that's just anecdotal evidence based on, you know, my friends and stuff. <laughs> but do you think there's something to do with that? I think, you know the left lurching so hard to the to you know the socialist side of their party i don't think that's actually in line with minorities so they're you know they're catering to the socialists but they're still trying to maintain the barack obama coalition that that got him elected twice and i don't know if those two things are necessarily compatible uh i don't know i mean i'll, I'll be honest with you just spitballing here i've never really thought of it from uh from that perspective necessarily i do know that uh, African Americans and Hispanics tend to be more socially conservative, uh, even if they're not economically so. I don't know if that like puts them off in any way. I don't think of socialists as necessarily like getting into social views, conservative wise, uh, or, or um, if that makes sense. Um, but um, I haven't really thought of it from uh, from that perspective. But yes, I agree that the I, I don't think I've ever seen a black guy wearing a chain T-shirt. I'll agree <laughs> with you there. <laughs> <laughs> I, w I want to talk about one more poll, and then and then we'll move on from uh, um, our you know way premature uh, pr projections for the Democratic primary. Um, yes, yeah, but, yeah, we can look back in time on this and be wow, Biden was wiped out by December. We'll see. I mean, yeah, I can't wait for the the listeners to just destroy us in six months by playing back our audio from today. <laughs> but um, Quinnipiac uh, released another poll, just a baseline national poll, and obviously the national polls matter way less than than the state polling data we've you know we've learned this every two years <laughs> essentially but in the quinnipiac national poll biden's at 38 percent elizabeth warren is at 12 percent bernie sanders is all the way down at 11 percent people to judge 10 harris 8 beto uh five cory booker two <laughs> and no one else uh registering more than one percent um 
this could be an outlier. Quinnipiac, they're, they're reliable, but they have been known to release some real outlier polls. Um, is there a chance that with, I think the number that jumped out at me was Bernie Sanders down in third place behind Elizabeth Warren at only 11% support and Biden, you know, like we mentioned earlier, way ahead at 38%. Um, do you think the, uh, the Bernie moment may be over? Do you think he's uh similar kind of to Ron Paul 2008 versus Ron Paul 2012? You know, like he, his moment was kind of over at that point, or do you think this is an outlier? No, I think it's an outlier. Bernie didn't have a good Bernie didn't have a good week. I think he was the biggest victim of Joe entering the race. Right. Uh, and again, they're the two most well-known guys. But since Sanders, for one thing, isn't it'd be it'd be harder to say that if I didn't know he'd done this before and he ran a very formidable race against Hillary Clinton and that whole machine and no one on the party wanted him to win last time. So I think he's got the staying power to be in this for a long time. And I've seen a lot of surveys that show him as a lot of people's second choice. So if you saw some of these other people start to flood out. Uh, on the far left behind Bernie, there's a million of them. I couldn't even name them all off the top of my head. He he could very well pick up that support. So I don't necessarily see – I mean, it's a rough week. He definitely stepped in it with that ridiculous answer on the Boston Marathon bomber voting. And he's really – I mean, he's sticking to his guns. He, he, he really firmly believes that every felon, every violent felon, murderer, rapist in the country should vote behind bars. But even that was too extreme for a lot of people. I think uh, 75% of people on one Business Insider poll were against that. So um, I think he was hurt by Biden entering a little bit, but by no means uh, is he going anywhere. One more question uh, in in terms of the primaries. And uh, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I think, on the podcast. I forget who I was speaking to, but just in my heart and in my head right now, I still can't picture any of these clowns being the nominee from a major political party in America in, in 2020. Is there any chance, based on people that are in or out of the race right now, I can't help but have the feeling in the back of my head that there's going to be some kind of like deus ex machina moment, Arya Stark running up from nowhere and, and killing the Night King kind of thing you know, in the 11th hour, where somebody else just jumps in and takes the nomination. Is there any other candidate running or even somebody who isn't running yet that you could see kind of saying, okay, look, like these guys have no chance to beat Trump. And just somebody out of left field jumps in and ends up getting support and taking the nomination. Is that possible? And is there a candidate like a dark horse that sticks out in your mind? I mean, anything's possible. Uh, I mean, it's unlikely. Right. Uh, I think the only person I could see doing that, the only person who comes to the top of my head who can maybe pull off something crazy like that would be Oprah. Just because of her, uh, her fame, her money, instant name ID, you know, everyone loves her, that kind of thing. I mean, that could shake the race up. But I get the sense that this is the crop that we're going to have. And uh, it'll be one of these, you know, six or seven people at the top here. I mean, other people joke about Hillary Clinton jumping back into the race. But I, I, I highly doubt that. There is no there is no attitude for her. I think she knows. It. So other than Oprah, which I don't think is going to happen because she said she wouldn't. Um, and I, I, I trust Oprah. Uh, I don't think I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think she'd want to. I mean, her whole brand is that everybody loves her. So I don't think she'd want to go from everybody loving her to half the country hating her uh, in, no, exactly. in five seconds. Who would exactly. do that to themselves? <laughs> Politics. Half everyone's going to start hating you immediately. And um, Oprah is, is generally loved by most people. Right. So we have to mention the dumbest proposal that I can remember, at least, by a presidential <laughs> candidate. Uh, I, I really can't think of anything dumber than this. And this came courtesy today of Kirsten Gillibrand, the junior senator from the state of New York, who uh, is not even showing up in any polls. I mean, she's polling at 
I, like, you know, 0.1%, something like that. I think it's just like her parents wanted her to be president, maybe her kids. Uh, and, it, yeah, it's just she's running an absolutely pathetic campaign. But let's talk a little bit about her, her proposal of uh, that she's calling democracy dollars. Uh, yeah, David, take it away. This is just really incredible stuff. Uh, yeah, well, I'll just explain to everybody. The way it would work is uh, voters, if they wanted to participate, I'll make it clear, this isn't some program where everyone would automatically be given these democracy dollars. You've got to want them. So if you want your democracy dollars, you request up to $600 from the uh, Federal Election Commission, FEC, and you are then allowed to spend $200 each on uh, House, Senate, and presidential races, uh, $100 each on the primary and general election cycle, and that's it. And you also can't get out of state, which I thought was interesting because that would really screw over people like Beto O'Rourke, who got a ton of his money from outside <laughs> Texas. Uh, that would really hurt him because a lot of Texans didn't want him to win, obviously, but a lot of people from Massachusetts and D.C. did. And uh, yeah, and according to her, this would just fix the corrupting influence of money in our politics. Um, now, I think it's interesting because, as one of my colleagues pointed out, you know, we're always hearing about getting money out of politics. I added it up. The last two cycles, <laughs> about $12 billion was spent by every candidate party outside group over the past two cycles. That's everybody, mm -hmm. everyone. If just a quarter of eligible voters ask for their $600 a piece next time, that would be about $35 billion, <laughs> um, which is a lot of money. And uh, she says they would, they would pay for this by limiting a corporate deduction for corporate compensation. It's never going to happen. It's just another idea to get create buzz. Um, but it's, it's silly. It's, there's free speech aspects that don't work out here. Um, uh, the candidates have to opt in also. Here's another thing. It's kind of circular. The candidates also have to opt in in to be eligible to get the democracy dollars and then you have to agree to forego any contribution larger than two hundred dollars per donor so if all the candidates were like well screw that then you wouldn't be able to spend your democracy dollars on anybody because you couldn't only give them to people who were opting in it's, it's kind of confusing but since it will never happen um i guess it's all academic yeah this wasn't even thought out very well um it is it's really just astounding and i've never been, no, I don't quite get it. Um, yeah. Yeah, like I, I've never cared about money in politics. I mean, donating money is speech. That is political speech. So obviously, this would be in violation of the First Amendment. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, you know, if you want to get money out of politics, tripling or quadrupling the amount of money in politics seems like a very strange way to go about it. But um, you know, this has about the same uh, likelihood of, of becoming law as. Kirsten Gillibrand does is becoming president of the United States. So I, th I think we're safe. Um, I know you got to go here in a couple minutes, David. And uh, thanks again for, for coming on. I do want to briefly mention Venezuela. Uh, things are getting things are getting bloody. Things are getting violent in Venezuela. Unfortunately, we all saw this coming for the last several months. Um, interim President Juan Guaido has called for a military uprising. Communist dictator Nicolas Maduro is doing uh, everything he possibly can to stay in power, which is what dictators do. Um, which, starting yesterday, included uh, mowing down innocent civilians with armored vehicles. So um, are, are we headed towards a, a full-scale civil war in South America? Uh, I mean, God, God hope, I hope not. Um, hopefully, um, I mean, I mean, you really can't count on Maduro to do the right thing at this point. He's obviously a, a horrible, bloodthirsty dictator. And uh, you're seeing the pernicious influence of uh, Russia and Cuba in that country because uh, the White House thinks that if it weren't for Russia, Maduro probably would have fled the country, but he has their backing as well. So if there does end up being a true war there, that's going to be on the countries like Russia and, and Cuba's hands. So, um, I mean, I'm glad the administration is clearly 
clearly with the Trump administration, is clearly with uh, the opposition. Juan Guaido, we've recognized him as the country's legitimate president. Maduro was elected in January, but it was a sham. No, everyone knows it wasn't actually a fair election. And um, so I, I hope not. I can't obviously I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, it does look very it does look very dicey there. And uh, hopefully cooler heads will prevail and Maduro will finally recognize that there's there's no there's no positive outcome here for him to him staying just a disaster situation. Right there. there and there has been some high level defections. I believe the, the leader of the secret police has defected. And yeah, went over to right. uh, check uh, went over to Guaido, which is. Great news. Yeah, that that's huge. I mean, that is a huge uh, defection. Yeah, and quickly thing to share with your readers and or, me, listeners. Sorry, uh, a hilarious thing yesterday on MSNBC, and uh, I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are pro Second Amendment. Uh, MSNBC was reporting on the uh, on the tumult there and mentioned how uh, if people don't know Venezuela banned private gun ownership in 2012. Right. And he mentioned how since the military is the only group armed group in the country, since Maduro controls the military, he controls the country which is about as good argument as you can have for the Second Amendment and protecting those freedoms in the United States. No one in Venezuela has a gun, or there's no guns allowed anyway under their law. And, and now look what the country is. It's a, it's a pretty sober reminder of our freedoms and, and how important they are. And uh, just um, God with them. I hope, I hope everything works out for them. Absolutely. And that must have hurt. That must have hurt the folks over at MSNBC. That must have really stung to it. To they admit. said it, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so I do have to push back on. Obviously, I, the 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 stance of the White House and the Pentagon is spot on. We need to support interim President Juan Guaido. He is the legitimate leader of that country. Um, but so, some of the the I hate just using the word neocon all the time because it's kind of become just means somebody on the right I don't like, you know. But um. Some of the neocon types, the the Lindsey Graham's, the John Bolton types, really do scare me a little bit when they start talking about Venezuela. They seem eager to get involved, to you know maybe even send military assets down there. I mean, I know I know you're not a you know might not be a military expert or something like that, but where should we draw the line in this conflict? Like I, I for one don't I don't think the American military should be within 500 miles of Venezuela. I, we should support them with humanitarian aid. We should do anything we can do to support Juan Guaido short of getting, you know, boots on the, putting boots on the ground, if you will. So I, I do think some on the right are, are they're, they're hearing the war drums a little bit and it's making them excited, which always makes me very nervous. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's fair. Um, but uh, as my editor mentioned yesterday when he was on TV, Russia is trying to overthrow the Monroe Doctrine here. Um, right. So, I think it's very important for us to, you know, I, I think it's, I always cringe on the other side of things when, you know, the Obama administration would obviously take that kind of action off the table. I don't see there's any, I don't see any plus in us uh, taking that kind of thing off the table and let it reminding them that uh, we could use that option, even if we don't have any intention of doing it privately. And I hope we don't. I mean, I don't think anyone hopes for U.S. troops to actually go there and there to be any more uh, bloodshed or conflict. But I don't think it's also wise to necessarily signal that we would never do that in the first place. I think it just betrays a, a weakness on our end. And as we've seen, Russia responds and, and Venezuela responds to strength, uh, not weakness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. And I totally agree. Um, obviously, nothing should be off the table. And yeah, that was a very odd move by the Obama administration for eight years, kind of telegraphing what we were going to do or not do. It didn't really make any sense to anybody. So, David, thanks so much again for coming on. I know you have a heart out here. Before I let you go, where can everybody follow you online and read your stuff and keep in touch and all of that good stuff? 
Sure. Um, at uh, freebeacon.com and my Twitter handle is David Rutz and D-A-V-I-D-R-U-T-Z. And uh, yeah, that's how you can find me. So I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Everybody follow David. He's great. Everybody check out uh, freebeacon.com. It is a great publication. Uh, that's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Thank you.